am I going to be writing uh, an objective history full of facts about Jesus? And the answer is no, simply no. All, all they show is that Christians believed stuff. It was actually the things he was saying were, were just held, had more purchase for, for the people that heard them. And he was genuinely a bit more kind of revolutionary. Why have you got a private jet? Why is Joel Osteen swimming in money? So it's, it's, it's all about uh, these ad hoc rationalizations and post hoc rationalizations where, where you come up with these real problems. You know, why did Jesus say that you should hate your family and stuff like that? You know, all the problematic things that Jesus actually said in, in the New Testament. It's like, oh, God, we've got to put a plaster on this or a Band-Aid on this. We've got to put a Band-Aid on this. So the whole thing just is, is just a mass of Band-Aids that, that you have to react to each individual problem um, because, it, because, of course, it's just a human thing and it's fraught with problems because, quite frankly, it was made up by humans. Welcome back to the Gnostic Informant, and you are about to attain true Gnosis. Today I'm joined by Jonathan M.S. Pierce, author of Resurrection, A Critical Examination of the Easter Story. Check that out on Amazon. There it is. There it is. And um, Question mark. <laughs> nice. It's great. I love that. I love that cover. And so we're going to talk about that. So, Jonathan, I got I'm just going to run by you a quote from a scholar, a biblical, you know, PhD, high level scholarship right here. And uh, this is Dr. Gary Habermas. And this is what he says. There is a virtual consensus among scholars who studied the Jesus resurrection that subsequent to Jesus death by crucifixion, his disciples really believed that he appeared to them from the dead. This conclusion has been reached by data that suggested that the disciples themselves claim that the risen Jesus had appeared to them and subsequent Jesus' death by crucifixion, his disciples were radically transformed from fearful, cowering individuals who denied and abandoned him at the arrest and execution into bold proclaimers of the gospel of the risen Lord. They remained steadfast in the face of imprisonment, torture, and martyrdom. It is very clear that they sincerely believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Quote, yeah so uh that's that's a you hear that kind of claim quite a lot in fact the, it sounds very similar to the, the beginning of that sounds really similar to gary habermas's uh 75 of new testament scholars believe in the empty tomb like the historical truth of the empty tomb i in fact uh devote an entire chapter on this in the book because it's such a common claim and and even william lane craig trots it out in um in debates uh, the idea and there your version of that claim was slightly more nebulous which is like scholars you know most scholars believe or i forget exactly how you phrased it or how he phrased it there but but the idea is well who are these scholars okay so if you're talking his claim 75 percent of new testament scholars believe in the empty tomb well if most scholars are christian and they go into studying the new testament studying the bible because they're tri christian and want to to confirm their own faith then of course you've got a selection bias with that with that data uh 100 almost of islamic scholars believe in the truth of muhammad being revealed to over a 22 year period does that mean it's true no literally no one outside of islam believes that that's true and that's an even better statistic than gary habermas's one uh as i say i devote an entire chapter to that and his statistics are wholly problematic and actually what you come away with that believing is that 75 percent is actually quite low like you would expect a higher percentage of New Testament scholars to actually believe in in, in the truth of, of the empty tomb and, and other associated facts. So, yeah, thoroughly problematic. Um, but also this idea in the second part of the quote is that the people who suffer for a, a belief um, somehow, if you suffer for belief, it's more likely to be true or it, it adds to some some kind of evidentiary value of the claims or, or some such thing of course that's nonsense people you know die for all sorts you only have to look at islamic fundamentalism right and say well okay well that's not true and because they're dying for those beliefs doesn't mean make it any more true yeah and not only that the sources that we have are actually the source that we have 
for the martyrdoms is from Eusebius in the fourth century. And we and then that that same exact source that we get that from, all those same scholars agree that most of that in there is forgeries, interpolations, and just straight up lies by Eusebius. So if we were in the court of law and we were going to use that source, it would get thrown out immediately. Yeah, is it Candida Moss that, that that's written a book or the that um uh from Nostradam uh Notre Dame, sorry, as I said in America. Uh, um, it should, so she wrote a book saying that persecution is is well overplayed by the by the Christian sort of apologist, and in fact there wasn't that much persecution, or you know it wasn't as 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 great as people claim, as as again some of the sources might might try to indicate. So yeah, it's or sorry. I was talking to Richard Carrier last night. He made a good point about this. A lot of those martyrdoms are actually Jewish persecution in the first century by Romans, and they just stole those basically and said those were christians but they really were just jews yeah co-opted yeah yeah and uh oh, I, yeah. I would yeah i would need to look at the data for that and i'll be interested to to see that interview actually but but yeah uh, ostensibly you, you know you you've got a problem with data there and and you know when history is written by the victor in in this case it's it's the christian church and christians then they are going to be playing themselves up as as having this martyrdom complex that that oh woe was me or uh, going through all this but look how awesome we are now type thing so uh, again how can we check the data how how robust it, uh, uh, is the data are the claims just incredibly dubious so you, you've got to treat claims like that with with a real sort of pinch of salt yeah and and another thing gary haverman always remembers to say i'll give him credit for this he always remembers to say they believed he doesn't say oh we have evidence that he came he always says we have evidence that they believe they saw him okay at least he words it right because if he doesn't word it that way they could be straight up that could be like you know what i mean but he, they, yeah this is like josephus Tacitus, you know all these sort of kind of uh supposed extra biblical sources for christianity all all they show is that christians believed stuff doesn't, right. doesn't tell you anything about the actual content of the of the belief system or, or the you know it doesn't tell you anything about the evidence and, and the last thing i want to say about habermas because he's i feel like he's like the focal point of this type of scholarship hmm. and he he always says I've, I've heard him say this multiple times on different christian podcasts that we have more evidence for jesus than alexander the great and julius caesar's life so this is going to come down a lot to uh, I, the idea that a lot of Christians will argue that, that you have four independent sources for for what well, five, including Paul. So you've got Matthew, Mark, Luke and John and Paul uh, as sources for Jesus. And they are independent sources. And of course, most New Testament scholars these days, you know, even Christian scholars, actually, who are who are a, bit, a little more sort of robust with their thinking will will tell you that, no, that you have a huge amount of codependency. You've got Mark uh, and or you've got Mark. And possibly Q, depending on what your what your theory is about that. But this other sort of lost source uh, that could underwrite uh, Matthew and then Luke and then later John. But John will depend on all the previous Gospels and uh, Luke will arguably depend on Matthew and Mark or possibly it depends what your theories on Luke and Matthew are and which came first and whether they co-dependent on each other and uh, all this kind of stuff so there are lots of different theories but the idea is that the, the the definite truth as far as I'm concerned is that these are not independent sources and, and so and therefore so sorry so therefore you're only left with Paul and Mark uh who are not contemporary of Jesus they are not eyewitness uh reports and 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 therefore uh, they are just I I think not nearly as as credible as the sources for for those other historical figures you had mentioned yeah and something that you said that is couldn't be farther from the truth is they're codependent on each other but one of those yeah. pieces falls off the whole thing falls apart i mean i was talking to carrier last night about how the historicity not 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 necessarily the religion and the and the myth and how many manuscripts we have and how many gospels there are and how many sects of Christianity. Of course, there's a tons of that. But when it comes to like the historical aspect, it's hanging on by a thread, literally just threads. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, the problem is we don't know the sources. We don't know even the authors of the gospels, but we, we don't know. We know a little bit about Paul, uh, but really Matthew, Mike, Luke and John, there are educated guesses. But who were their sources? 
there's no historiographical uh, methodology being used. So recognizable historiography that we see in in contemporaneous historians, albeit, you know, not very good historians. So there's a range of kind of the quality of historians around at the time. But even some of the more dodgy ones, Suetonius and, and such like, use better historiographical techniques uh, and methods than, than the gospel writers who don't name their sources at all, who don't discuss their sources they aren't saying well this might be a bit dodgy because it's come from here even you've got people like Thucydides who would say yeah I've got speech in my in my um in my writing and I I admit to basically making up speech but I think it broadly reflects what they would have said type thing so he's very open about that as soon as you've got speech in any kind of document like the gospels klaxons of warning should be going off because Who's recording this? Who's standing there with a slate or a dictaphone taking this down and then waiting 40 odd years and then putting it down in a gospel account and, and, and people reading it saying, well, that's 100% true. It's just nonsense. I, I, was, I was talking about this with somebody and I said, it's, it's basically like imagine 9-11 happening and then the media doesn't say anything about it for 40 years. And then all of a sudden, 2041 comes around and they're like... Breaking news! 9-11 happened 40 years ago. This was a cra- Oh, look at this. Look at this. It's worse than that. It's worse than that. So in my book, I use the David Koresh argument. So I say, wait 40 years until after David Koresh has, has died. You then come to... Imagine it's me, right? I'm a gospel writer or a David Koresh gospel writer. I then come after 40 years to believe that David Koresh is the Messiah. So I then come to write a, a, a supposedly objective history. I'd argue it's not supposedly objective history. The gospel writers wouldn't have been writing objective history. That's what that's what people 2,000 years later like to think. Christians like to think it's objective history. It's of course not. But imagine 40 years ago, you know, elapses. I write a, a history of David Koresh's life after believing he's the, he's the Messiah. But I don't have access to libraries, public libraries. I don't have access to the, the eyewitnesses. I don't have a telephone. I don't have the internet. I have no way of really re- researching stuff. I'm receiving oral traditions o- on this, but, but you know, arguably nothing written down, or at least very few things written down, maybe some sayings or, or whatnot. And, and I write this thing where my sole intention is to evangelize, which is to persuade the readers or the listeners to believe what I want them to believe, right? So this is hugely persuasive as a, as a genre. As a form of writing, I am, I've got an agenda. Am I going to be writing uh, an objective history full of facts about Jesus? And the answer is no, simply no. All right, so what would you say exactly happened then? So we have this, we have this sort of 40-year gap, and then Paul starts writing these letters, and then this religious movement happens. Now, it's very slow. Obviously, it really doesn't take pick up until hundreds of years later. And it doesn't come a state religion of Rome until 200, 300 years later. And, and to even point out, to even go even deeper, you've got writers like Plutarch and, and, and Seneca who are writing stuff, similar subjects, and they're not mentioning this. So obviously, this is not big at all. No one knows about this until way later. Pliny the Younger, in fact... I should say, Pliny the Elder says nothing about Christianity, and he's writing about Jews in Qumran and like in that area, and he's also writing about prodigal births and, and people who got deified, people who rose from the dead. Never mentions Jesus. Pliny the Younger, another generation later, he talks about him like he heard him for the first time. These weird Christian people, I never heard of him before. What should I do? So, with that being said, what do you think happened to make this thing grow from such a small? fringe thing into what really, it is. that's a really great question um one of the best books i've read in recent times is bart ehrman's jesus before the gospels right it's it's actually a really good book and the, and the reason why it's a really good book is he spent a couple of years researching memory and how memory works and how oral traditions work because if you want to understand how reliable the gospels are or aren't you need to understand what goes what would have happened in in the period between jesus dying and the gospels being written yeah so the first thing i would say is that um oral traditions you hear from christians a lot that that uh oral cultures uh, have supposedly uh, jam-packed full of people who remember things really, really well because they've got no way of writing them down. It's not a literary culture, so they, they generally remember things really well. There's no genetic evidence for this, no biological evidence for this. This would have to be a learned thing, right? Okay, so um, 
so does that claim hold up? Actually, it doesn't. So when you look at when you look at the the, the data from people who we see as having an oral tradition these days, or from research that we can do of other peoples in in times past and the Homeric tradition. Uh, it, it turns out that oral traditions aren't interested in passing on things super accurately. And it's it's impossible to test anyway, because you generally don't often have the, the thing at the beginning to compare it to the thing at the end. But what people are doing is they are they are considering their audience when they're when they are doing whatever, singing a song, telling a poem or saying whatever. It's all about communicating an idea to the audience. So actually, the facts, the su supposed what we might see as facts these days aren't important. It, it, it's, a, it's an about an agenda and it's about a relationship with the with the audience okay so the, and then you have um these different sects within uh nascent christianity who are vying with each other for theological purchase so you've got john for example saying something completely different to mark um so so not only do you, do you you have very poor oral transmission which isn't interested in in necessarily the facts you, you've got to put yourself in this situation, right? You are a guy in 65 CE, right? Someone has told you a story about Jesus. You've never met Jesus. The person that's told you the story has never met Jesus. Tells you the story. You then tell someone else that story, right? It's not a poem that has certain structures that mean you keep to certain, uh, you know, it has almost a self-correcting mechanism whereby you will be correcting yourself to fit in with it with the poem like what you say has to fit in with the rhyme and therefore it helps you remember things in particular orders these are narratives that you are telling a story of jesus and things will naturally change of course they will depending on who your audience is and what your theology is and then you'll have change happening on purpose so uh, you know and you can compare john to mark in in say the baptism what's going on there completely different accounts of the baptism or the collection of their early um early disciples so john john has jesus already as a lamb of god and being uh divine mark doesn't so they're telling completely different stories with completely different agendas or the same story but completely differently all of that is to say that you've got massive change going on okay from 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 what happened in in jesus actual life to the gospel starting so how can we know what happened in jesus's life well you can be a mythicist and say it's all made up out of whole cloth Possibly, I don't want to die on that hill. I probably think that's maybe got a 30% chance of being true. I, you know, whatever. I'm a bit ambivalent. And in fact, I'm a bit ambivalent about what happened in Jesus' life because the Gospels are not telling you what happened in the actual Jesus' life. Am I making sense so far? Yes, absolutely. So, so what, what, and this is what Bart Ehrman talks about in, in, in his book, Jesus Before the Gospels, which is what are the gist memories? So, so you say all these, you might have some kind of basic framework structure of, of what might have happened in Jesus' life, which is that he went to Jerusalem or at the end of his life, he went to Jerusalem, he, he annoyed some people, he got arrested, he got executed. That, that, that's your gist memories, right? And then, and then that all gets padded out with theology. Yeah. By people who are really interested in this guy, but they're a messiah. They've gone through. He, they think he's a messiah. They've gone through cognitive dissonance. They come back, uh, and they and they create a whole new narrative for this person. So John Dominic Crossan talks about this, and 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 he talks about the theory that that it happened in three stages. Which is the first stage is Jesus died. Second stage is his supporters went away and tried to understand Jesus dying, and they did that through looking through the Old Testament, right? And then they then they have an understanding, come back with an understanding of how Jesus died. And then they write that understanding into a narrative. But that narrative is written in view of the understanding and not in view of the events that actually happened. And it's it's absolutely 100 percent as far as I'm concerned that that that's almost certainly what would have happened. So you've got some if you're a historicist. If I, I am a historicist, right? So I think a minimum set of facts happened, which is probably Jesus went to Jerusalem, annoyed some people, got arrested, was executed. His supporters thought he was a Messiah. His Messiah is not supposed to be executed. Oh dear, how do we understand this? They go away, uh, trawl through the Old Testament, create a new narrative about Jesus. They throw loads of the Old Testament at it, and then this develops over time, and then you get the Gospels. Yeah, now I'm going to have to quote Robert M. Price on him saying, once you take off all the mythology part, like you were talking about, you, you get this sort of skeleton version of Jesus, and it's 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 a dime a dozen. He says, "Yeah, these are 
there's Simon of Perea, there's Judas of Galilee. I mean, we have other accounts of people doing the same stuff. Yeah. And they had cult followings too. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the, when, you, the, when it comes to the mythicist argument, I, I don't, I mean, I, I don't like hate on that because what they're saying basically is even if there was a guy named Jesus, the whole thing, you can look at every part of the gospels, like, like him being sold by Judas for 30 shekels. Okay. That's from, that's from Genesis from Joseph, or uh, like you could literally pick out like Psalm 22 when he's on the cross. All that stuff is from somewhere else. Yeah. And once you take, once you negate all of that, you're left with, like you said, you're left with a guy who was born in, in, in Bethlehem or whatever. Well, no, you see, I would say what, what, because I wrote a book on the nativity, actually. Oh, yeah, yeah, get into that. Nativity, a critical examination. So, um, which this fits into, this is part of a trilogy of books. I'm writing one in the Exodus now. But anyway, so the nativity, you've got this weird situation where I would say that the only thing we know about Jesus's sort of early life is that he was born in Nazareth, is, sorry, he's from Nazareth, right? So, so you've got Jesus from Nazareth, and then you've got Luke and Matthew trawling through the old testament thinking that he has to be born in bethlehem arguably that's a, that's a wrong reading of 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 the so-called prophecy and it's that he should become from the house of bethlehem rather than actually born in bethlehem but whatever so they need to contrive to get into bethlehem to be born so they invent two different ways one has a census the other has him already living in bethlehem then and herod coming along as the new pharaoh and him going off across to egypt and then coming out of egypt uh, to fulfill you know matthew's prophetic ideas of, of of who Jesus was as the new Moses, blah, 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 blah. Sorry, I'm banging on quite a lot. No, 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 but, but the idea is that, that, again, what do we know about Jesus's birth? Well, all of that's made up and thrown at Jesus of Nazareth. What do we know? He's called, I think, I think what happened is his followers, he was known as Jesus of Nazareth. Right. And when a guy is known as Jesus of Nazareth and then dies as he's your follower, then when you start writing stuff about him, about his birth, He's like, well, he's Jesus of Nazareth. We can't get away with saying he's not Jesus of Nazareth because literally that's how everyone knows him. But he has to be born in Bethlehem, which means that we need him born in Bethlehem, but then returning to Nazareth so that he becomes known as Jesus of Nazareth. And because they have two utterly different ways of doing that that are completely incoherent. They don't they don't work with each other at all. You have this bizarre construction of his early life. Well, actually, that's broadly what's what's going to be happening in, in in the resurrection accounts as well, which is four different voices giving you an idea of what happened at the end. So it's funny because I, after I just said what I said about the whole taking off the myths and having a skeleton Jesus, I started from the beginning and right away I ran into a myth. Yeah, that's how quick it takes. That's how easy it is, and it's really hard to actually find a historical Jesus. The fact that he had to be born in Bethlehem actually makes sense from a mythological standpoint. That's where David's from. He's good. Yeah. So he's the David. He's the line of David. It has to be from about the, the house of bread. Yeah. So this is important for the, and this is how to understand the synoptics as well. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke, I would argue, understand Jesus as a Messiah, not as a Holy Trinity as we now understand Jesus or Christians now understand Jesus. John starts the ball rolling. So he has a completely different understanding of Jesus where Jesus is God you know, the word Logos strike right from the beginning. And then when he's going out and, and, and collecting disciples, they're like, this is the Lamb of God, which is why you start getting John changing the resurrection to have Jesus crucified on the Passover, which means he is literally, as well as metaphorically, he's like in some kind of hyper literal sense, the actual Passover lamb. I know that's metaphoric, it's not literal, but do you know what I mean? So he is, so John moves the day. So if John's happy to just move the day to fit his agenda, which is Jesus is the Lamb of God. Uh, he's the now he's the new Passover Lamb that's being sacrificed. And what else is John happy to change just because it fits in with his agenda? But anyway, I interrupted you. Sorry. But the, the idea is that Matthew, Mark, and Luke have have this understanding that Jesus is a Messiah, and therefore to be born of of the house of David and in David's line is really important for messianic fulfillment. Right. So the Messiah has to be that. So. That's why they're really interested in in those ideas. Yeah, and that's what I was getting at was, you said it perfectly, is that there's these elements that have to be in the narrative to make him the Messiah. It has to be A, B, C, D until you get to the resurrection. And then he has to die and he has to to be three days for some reason. And what, I mean, now, I mean, now I'm even wondering how much of there is left at that. 
Okay, maybe maybe well, he's born in Nazareth. You don't have anything from his childhood. He goes not, to Egypt and then he's gone. Then he comes back. He's thirty years old. He's meeting John the Baptist right away. Well, what? let's put this in a re- in in a real world context, right? The reason why you got nothing about his his birth is, of course, he's just a normal bloke, right? <laughs> he's just who becomes an itinerant um, cult leader, and and at the age of thirty, whatever. So he he so people know about him at that age, and of. And of course, no one knew him as a young child of, of his followers. And so there aren't these. You start getting some infancy, fantastical writing that comes later from the apocryphal texts and whatnot. But but actually, the gospel authors struggle to include anything because they literally there would have been nothing um, to work with. So yeah. I, I, don't, I don't even know if he went to Egypt because isn't that like oh, no. an Abraham thing? Isn't that like, here? look, Abraham went to Egypt. So did no, it's, it's a Moses thing. Moses. So, 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 th- so this is Matthew because Matthew is writing for a Jewish audience. Uh, so he wants to s- go back and think, right, what are these authors doing? Right. Each of them have an audience, right? So they have an audience and they have an, oge- an objective. I always talk about the three elements of writing. So you have audience, purpose, form. So your form is what you're writing or what style of writing you're doing and your content. And that will be, that will be defined by your audience and purpose. So if I'm if I want to convince uh, my local member of parliament to change the rules about something, I'm going to write a persuasive letter that uses persuasive language, but is very formal. Right. Because I'm being defined by my audience and purpose. OK, the, or, the gospel authors have different audiences, but broadly similar purposes. But the purpose will, will change slightly with the audience. So Matthew's audience are Jews, by and large, and he's really interested in validating Jesus with, with within a Jewish context so that his Jewish audience go, yes, I get that. Oh, I noticed that. Oh, and you've got to remember that, that Jesus has to be, if he's either the Messiah or God, he has to be better than anything that has come previously. So if you're a Jew, your number one dude is Moses. So if if your number one dude is Moses, Jesus has to be an uber Moses. Right. So so if you're writing your gospel to convince your your audience that Jesus is the Messiah, he has to be one better than Moses. And he has to be better than Elijah in power. Yeah. yeah. On all of them or everyone. But 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 I think Moses is an interesting one. Dale C. Allison's written a book on on how Jesus is basically Moses rewritten. Uh, so you get the, you know, the Sermon on the Mount is an interesting one uh, because. Uh, is it only appears in one gospel, um, which which is Matthew's, isn't it? So yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. So the Sermon on the Mount is Moses up a mountain receiving, you know, uh, wisdom from 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 God. So this is the new. Mo- he he comes out of Egypt. I out of e- Egypt. I'll call my son Israel. Uh, all Jesus is Moses for for right. for um, for Matthew. Uh, but not for anyone else, because Luke has a different audience. He's appealing more to Gentiles. So actually talking about Moses isn't really going to float their boats. So there you get. Your that, different- and then you got the whole aspect of. So if you go to the book, of, second book of Kings, I think it's second book of Kings or one, maybe one, one Chronicles. But you got Elijah and Elisha and Elisha, when he when he um, takes over after Elijah goes up into heaven, he gets double of his power. So then what they do in the gospel is they apply Elijah, who the Jews are waiting for him to return, and they they sort of play on that aspect as Elijah came back, it's John the Baptist. But who's double the power of John the Baptist is Elisha, and they sort of apply this Elisha characteristics to Jesus. Jesus. Yeah, and of course you've got really interesting ideas with the baptism of John the Baptist, and and, and John and Mark have completely different understandings of of who Jesus, because the 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 original understanding of someone who's baptizing is that they are more superior to the people that they are baptizing. But of course, how can Jesus be less superior than or inferior to to John the Baptist? So you have these weird r- sort of theological wranglings that are going on. Um, and and G, uh, John and Mark treat the baptism quite differently. And, and how can someone need to repent anyway if they are Jesus and divine? And so there's different theological agendas going on. But I think that maybe some element of baptism might be a gist memory, might be something that actually happened. And they're re- then writing that in into a complete into their own theological framework. I mean, what the gist memories are, if you believe in a historical Jesus, are are interesting i i i'm 
I, I'm not. I think it's quite reasonable to to suggest that actually Jesus probably was quite a charismatic leader, right? A, a miracle worker, a cult leader, and that he probably did have a bunch of sayings, and those sayings might well have ended up in the Gospels, and there might be some truth to the fact that he said them, which is why he had such a following. You know, at the end of the day, he probably was a bit of a revolutionary. If you believe in historical Jesus, he probably was a bit of a revolutionary leader that really did actually annoy people in Jerusalem to the to the point that they crucified him. Right. So he must have said some things. And then the question to what you said earlier, there are all these other other cult leaders, Simon Bar Kokhba and whatever. So what is it about Jesus that, that, that provided fertile ground for success? So maybe it was actually the things he was saying would just hell had more purchase for for the people that heard them and he was genuinely a bit more kind of revolutionary or or you could even argue kind of socialist or something there's interesting debates within within modern theology about the uncomfortable things jesus said in in terms of prosperity gospel like why is why have you got a private jet why is joel Osteen swimming in money when jesus you know so i think you, you could argue that there is some kind of historical basis to some fairly revolutionary thoughts that that meant that jesus the jesus story won out over other cult leader stories yeah and it, it's quite possible that he might have had a prediction that came true like it just you know he might he might have named a bunch of uh, predictions. Most of them probably didn't come true naturally, but maybe he did say the temple is going to fall, and then all of a sudden, seven, forty years later, you know, he could have. I mean, I just think all all of the gospels were almost certainly written after the fall of Jerusalem, and they are trying to understand that in light of of Jesus and in light of the, all their theology. Um, yeah. Well, what so, I'm saying is, what I'm saying is that could have been the thing that separated him from yeah. Simon and Ju Judas. Yeah. Because what if one of them said it and not Jesus? Maybe there'd be a Gospel of Judas instead of or Simon yeah. one. And I'm just throwing stuff out there, you know. Like, yeah. Who knows? But for so, some reason, success guy, would... I was saying for some reason this guy stuck and the other ones didn't. Yeah. Well, the reason it, I mean, we have to kind of guess at this, but but of what 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 makes pe people stick, right? And it and it's politics often. So so it's not just about what Jesus did and said, but it's actually about who his immediate followers were in important positions. So if you could say that, that a lot of people say Christianity is all about Paul, but to large, to some large extent, it would have been, you know, he's a really strong political mover. And some of those early, early, you know, members of the church and Peter and James, and, you know, you can imagine that the, the success of Christianity isn't, it's not just about what, who Jesus was and what he said, but it's about who his immediate followers in power were and what they did and how they spread his 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 message. Because and I said that I've said this in other interviews, the interesting thing, you know, Paul at the end of the day is saying Judaism is not going to sell to Gentiles. Right. No one wants to cut the end of their penis off. Like if you're going to say if you're going to go and like persuade someone to believe what you believe and say oh we've got 613 rules that you have to follow and then on the passover you've got to do this but you're not allowed to leave the house well you know and then you've got to cut the end of your penis off and then you've got to do this you got everyone's going to be like oh, jog on mate especially romans who are into saturnalia and bacchanalia and the orphic mysteries and having orgies and drinking wine they're not doing that there you go they're so so you have to get rid of that and replace it with something that's going to sell more. So why didn't Simon Barcockber win out? Well, no one was claiming he was God or no one was, maybe they're claiming he's a Messiah, but that Jesus was a little bit different. So they, they believed he was a Messiah and then maybe that developed, but they're also saying, and if, you, if you're going to come along with us in this Jesus cult, you don't have to be a hardcore Jew. Yeah. And, and, and so Paul is a big key, I think, because yeah. Paul, first of all, you got the earliest writings surviving, I should say, because who knows what if there's anything before that, and we don't really know. But Paul starts writing these letters, but the letters don't seem like natural letters. They seem like propaganda, like they want you to read this. Like we're, we were supposed to read this, it seems like to me. I don't know what you think about that. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, obviously you've got, you know, some of them are forgeries, and, uh, but let's assume that maybe seven of them are, are authentic. And obviously there are going to be a lot more that he would have written as well that don't, haven't survived. But I think things like Letter to the Corinthians is interesting, which is about 
arguing over theology really and saying how, how do we understand the resurrection so they had a view and again we can't really work out what the corinthians really thought but there was obviously an argument i go along with carrier in the sense that i think paul generally thought of a spiritual resurrection and the empty tomb uh, a motif the empty tomb events weren't weren't a thing yet i think that came, mark was the first person to put them out there and i think the empty tomb uh story is a reaction against the spiritual resurrection to say it was definitely a bodily resurrection we know this because there's an empty tomb and then it ends up with john having people poking jesus's body and jesus eating broiled fish so this is to say you know why would john include that john is including that to say no paul was wrong this is a bodily resurrection and this is kind of maybe an argument against kind of gnostic thoughts uh what however you can define that because it's quite right, broad, right. broad term. A term right yeah so uh so i think uh, so i think paul was 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 having arguments about, especially with james so yeah james, i don't know which one comes first i think but this, james, goes, this goes back to the, the idea of politics these guys are doing politics yeah no you're right that's a good point and i i i'm glad you brought that up because there is some you can sort of sense some reality in these letters because james is talking about he says you ignoramus it's not just about faith. You got to do works. You got good works is what shows your faith. And then Paul's like, it's all about faith. Works is nothing. And they're going back and forth about this whole works versus faith thing. And it shows that to me is a good sign of there really being some sort of like formation of these ideas. Like you said, political, political clashing within these groups. Yeah. Political and theological, which is because, yeah, you're absolutely right. This is a nascent belief system where they don't really understand what they believe yet. I mean, literally, they are invent. No one understood who Jesus was until. So if you believe that Jesus was the Holy Trinity, part of the Holy Trinity, no one understood that for 300 years. Right. right. So so you've got people basically blindly feeling around for their theology and 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 trying things out and that's that work that didn't work you i mean that's how i understand things would have happened because that's how humans work and if you've got if you've got this guy that died wasn't supposed to die how do i understand that i thought the messiah was going to be a military leader or or some kind of high high priest type messiah he wasn't he was executed he's executed by the romans could have been but but we want to blame the jews because actually christianity is a is a reaction against judaism in some sense so therefore we're gonna we're gonna over time we're gonna morph this this blame onto the jews rather than, than right. the romans so, so you've got politics and theology and, and infighting taking place and then it just being gradually more structured and structured and structured until you get councils and councils working things out more formally but it it kind of you know you, the, the difference from mark to matthew and luke to john is fascinating but it but yeah. it's like it's a process of human theology human developed theology i mean yeah and you brought you brought up that each of the gospel writers were looking at a different audience so you got mark mark's talking to some greeks that don't really like you so he's 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 all about cursing the fig tree and look, these Jews are, their father is Satan. You got uh, Matthew is, well, I want to talk to the Jews. So I'm going to, I'm going to throw in all this Moses lingo and make him feel like, the, feel good about this Messiah character. Luke is more of like a, I don't know how you describe Luke, but Luke has a different spin. So Luke would be, as far as I'm concerned, he'd be more to Gentiles and possibly more humble. A good, a good example of this would be, would be why, so who, who at the nativity, who, who does Luke, feature as the kind of main witnesses and who does matthew feature the main witnesses so luke features shepherds right, right. it's going to be a, a bit of a link to david but but actually in greek literature you've got to remember these guys writing greek, they would have done an awful lot of learning greek luke was particularly well well learned in in greek arguably and you know could be pulling on homeric you know writing and so on but anyway this kind of bucolic idea for, for, for greeks that the shepherd was this humble kind of it's quite an important aspect within greek literature but, but matthew on the other hand who's who's trying to appeal to a jewish audience has these really important 
uh, kingly figures, wise men coming over, magi coming over from the East, Zoroastrian. So this is all about saying our religion trumps Zoroastrianism, but right, we're, right. we're going to bring in Balaam, ideas of Balaam and Balaam. Yeah, the magi, if these magi are looking for the Messiah, who's Jesus, that means that any Zoroastrian, their truth is the truth that we have. They need us. Yeah. yeah. But uh, which you know, obviously the skeptic then goes, well, what happened to the Magi afterwards? Because surely they'd be the like the best representatives of Christianity. They've just seen God, right? And and suddenly they're not heard of ever again, <laughs> because of course they're just a literary. They're actually a literary mechanism to get Herod involved. So so Matthew, for Matthew, uh, he he needs to get Herod involved. He needs his his objective is Jesus is the new Moses, right? So I need I need my audience to realize that jesus is new moses so how do i do that well he can come out of egypt that fulfills that how does he get into egypt well we have herod herod's going to try and kill him in the slaughter of the innocents which is the death which is the um plague of the firstborn the firstborn so this is a retelling of of the moses story but i need to get herod involved how do i get herod involved so he uses the mechanism of, of these magi going to to jerusalem and wandering around going where's this messiah where's this new king type thing and then uh, herod going hey uh, let me find out about that and it's all pretty incoherent but basically that they are a literary mechanism to get herod involved but if you're also talking about like his audience and, and the way he's de you know developing his or the way he's trying to appeal to his audience, then these are super high up important people where Jesus is appealing to su super high up important people and convincing them of his messianicness. Whereas Luke is appealing to humble servants of, of, of a bucolic nature who are shepherds and, and very poor. So there, there's just a really interesting difference. And then, you know, can you follow that through in aspects of what they say throughout the rest of the Gospels? Yeah. Audience purpose. And it's fascinating because um, then you get John and John starts this, this universal message of, and it's like this spiritual logos sort of speaking to the Gnostics, but not just the Gnostics. He's sort of really trying to grab everyone in on this. This is it. We got the truth here. This is the real Messiah. This is, and it's very, um, like I said, spiritual. Like it's very, it's, it's a lot. It's, you're getting closer towards this whole, God, oh, the, Trinity. Like, yeah. the Trinity, right? And I think, and I think it's fun, and I think it it shows that how there's a progression here. Yeah. This didn't just come up. It's like we have it right here. We're done. We can just hold this and preserve this one truth that started in 33 AD, and that's the, the way it's going to stay forever. It's like no, this thing started off as some cult somewhere, and then slowly over time, it formed into something else, and then it formed into something else, and then it formed. And they started looking at Philo and started, oh, that's some good theology. Let's add that in the mix. And, and basically what happens is you see all these different church centers spring up. They've got the Egyptian Christians, the Syrian Christians, the, the Greek Christians, the Roman Christians, the Jewish Christians. And I guess I guess the one that wins out in the end, the one that sells the Constantine, is the one that makes the Romans innocent. And the Jews guilty, and the one that sort of looks like it has some pagan elements to it with this Trinity God, and like something that we can sell to our people. That you know, forget the law. Who cares? You're saved. Don't worry about that. You just do what you want. Just leave, believe in Jesus. You'll be saved. And that's the one that wins out. So, so, but that being said, you can see how it makes sense instead of it being some Jewish rebellion cult that's gonna magically win out because god's god's behind it no yeah so so this i see this so that's a completely skeptical account of of what what almost certainly happened which is a very human evolution of ideas okay you you the john is right out as i say if you've ever seen monty python the holy grail and the holy hand of grenade of antioch john is right out right so like he's so different from the synoptics and um and, and that's what you'd expect that to be the later gospel. If John was before the others, then you'd have this weird scenario where a more refined theology comes before these kind of more basic theologies, arguably. So this is what we'd expect if you saw a human progression of, of ideas and understanding of, of trying to make sense of what happened. And in fact, this went on for hundreds and hundreds of years. Christians go, that's not a skeptical view of it. That's called progressive revelation. 
And it's just like that's their get out of jail free card, which is like right. that's what you'd expect, which is to say we didn't not everything was in place to begin with. And these things were a progressive revelation starting actually back in the Old Testament. And you're like, yeah, no, no, it's hugely problematic. You know, this idea that, oh, what, people couldn't understand it straight away? That people didn't have the brains to, to develop the understanding of this straight away? Or I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what, and then the, and then that's a good point because if this all happened exactly as it's told, you would think that the closer you get to the events, the more close, the more truth, the more Christian, the more exact it should be. But it's the opposite. The farther away we get, the more the theology forms, and the more we get a real picture of Christianity. I mean, even 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 in the time when like Jerome's writing, there's more changes being done, and then you get the uh, this is actually before that. But then you get the Nicene Creed. Now, the reason why I bring up the Nicene Creed is because it tells you what to believe and how to be a Christian. Without that, you're not a Christian. If you don't believe in the Nicene Creed, you're not a Christian. And so if you take the farthest sect of Protestant, let's say Calvinism or Mormonism or something, and then compare it to Orthodox Christianity or, or Catholicism, you have people think they're, they're, they're so far apart today. They think oh, there's so many different groups of Christianity. They're so far apart. They don't know. They don't agree on anything. Well, actually, they agree more today than the people than the earliest Christians did in the first and second century. Back then, you had people believing in Sedemiurge and Sophia and all these crazy concepts that are not that are considered heretical now by any Christian. Even Mormons say, say that's heretical. So what I'm saying is it becomes more aligned. There's more alignment happening farther as we yeah. get closer to the future than there is back when it all happened. This is a really interesting idea, actually, because I'm just thinking about you could actually form this into a philosophical argument against God, which is to say that, that actually it's un, God is unfair because the Christian, the early Christians understood God less than the later Christians, which is to say that actually God is preferentially uh, treating later Christians, treating later Christians more preferentially, preferentially to earlier Christians. Um, it's, it's a bit, it's a bit like uh, I've, I've done some philosophical arguments uh, using doubting Thomas as, as a, an example of how God is unfair. So if God allowed Thomas to doubt that it, Thomas was knew Jesus was with Jesus, like was, was part of the disciples saw miracles took place. Walk on water. And right. heal people and then still doubted that doesn't yeah. make sense. That's still doubted. And then Jesus went, It's okay, touch me. He touches him. He's like, Okay, I believe now, right? Do I have that chance? I get to read a two thousand year old book, right? And I don't get to touch Jesus. And yet and yet I I could go to hell on, on account of that, depending on what your belief in the afterlife is. Uh, but Thomas was was got to live with Jesus, still doubted, and then got to poke him and go, "Oh, all right, I believe you now." So, so, so this is actually so I've, I formulated this into an actual into into a, like a logical syllogism to 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 show that actually God is unfair. This is unfair. The, 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 God is um, uh, giving different people. Uh, you know, you got Amazonian tribes people that never had access to to the, to the gospel at all. People like William Lane Craig then argue it's because they always would have rejected it. So he front loads like souls into the the Amazon that always would have rejected. It. He's like they're well, just NPC characters. They're, they don't. They're nothing. They're just. Just get rid of them. <laughs> uh, I watched Free Guy last night uh, with my kids, and uh, that that's all about NPC characters actually uh, forming real like personalities. And, and, <laughs> that's good. That's good. Uh, but uh, but yeah. So you, God is so. I think this idea of progressive revelation is an interesting one because you could argue it shows that God is unfair. God is God is giving um, preferential treatment to people who have a more fulsome understanding of because at the end of the day, if you want to, if the if, if the job. If, if the intention is that humans come into a loving relationship with God, then you're more likely to come into a loving relationship with God if you understand what God is and who God is. Surely, like if, if I think God is a rock, then then I'm going to really struggle to have a loving relationship with God because I completely misunderstand God. Do you, do you know what I mean? So so yeah yeah. Think, but basically, what you're getting at is it's not if it's not universal and it's not an absolute, then what is it? Well, well, it's just the idea that there, there's there's this progression of of, of revelation that, that means that the early Christians really didn't understand Jesus and God that much, right? And uh, and that's unfair because the late later Christians got 
got much better understanding. Uh, and that's an accident of birth. And surely that that's it, it's it's a bit and it, there's similar arguments you could have in like the Old Testament. So this progressive re- revelation argument. So I've had this before with Christians that I say, well, why we've understood we understand now that slavery is bad. Why did Jesus not come down and say slavery is bad? Like, honestly, guys, it's just bad. And here are the reasons why it's bad. Oh, because they, it, they just wouldn't have understood. Really? They wouldn't have understood that that slavery is bad. At the very least, Jesus could have, or God, Yahweh, could have just announced, don't do slavery. And the Ten Commandments could have just said, don't do it. But here's the thing. If he's going to if he's going to come down and say that stoning people is bad and that they shouldn't have understood that they've been stoning people for thousands of years. That's a big change. That's a big radical change. Then why wouldn't slavery be the same thing? Oh, they wouldn't have understood. Well, why do they understand stoning then? Why do they understand all these other changes on eating on the Sabbath? That's a big deal. They they shouldn't have understood that. If if that never happened, let's say the Sabbath thing never happened. He never ate grain on the Sabbath. And then we today we'd be saying, well, why didn't Jesus tell them that it's okay to eat eat grain on the Sabbath? Christians would say, well, they wouldn't have understood because they've always they always took the Sabbath was always holy to them. You have, of course to progress, you have to you have to reveal these things progressively. You can't do it all at once. They, people's brains just would have turned to mush. Right. But, it's always yeah. hindsight. You're always looking at things hindsight. If, so, if, depending on what was written, that's what we change. That's what we know. And we don't fuck with anything else. Yeah. So so it's 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 all about uh, these ad hoc rationalizations and post hoc rationalizations where where you come up with these real problems you know why did jesus say that you should hate your family and stuff like that you know all the problematic things that jesus actually said in in the new testament it's like oh god we've got to put a plaster on this or a band-aid on this we've got to put a band-aid on this so the whole thing just is is just a mass of band-aids that, that you have to react to each individual problem um uh, because it because of course it's just a human thing and it's fraught with problems because quite frankly it was made up by humans and humans are at the time that it's not it, it wasn't designed to be coherent you know from the beginning and here's here's what really when it, what it, and this is what it all boils down to is this so when you take a step back from all this the whole point of this is to save humans from their sins because adam and eve sinned we're all damned to hell according to the law and here's this jesus now he's coming he's going to die for you and you're going to be saved great okay so what's the point why why can't here's the thing my question is this why wouldn't it just be Adam and Eve sinned, we're flawed now, and then now we're saved because that's the miracle. He just saves us. Or or, or, or better yet, why, did, why are we even here to begin with? What's the point of this world if we're just going to the next world? If this is all just a big test to the next world, why didn't we just get created in heaven and say, look, you're here now. This is the way I want you. What's the point? I, I totally love what you're saying, man, because I've made all these arguments before heaps of times in lots of my books. So you're absolutely right. But what I, some of the brilliant feedback I've had for, for my resurrection book is, is, that, um, is that I spend part of the early part of the book uh, talking about doing philosophy. Right, so lots of people write on the resurrection and they'll look at like the, the claims of the actual stuff that happens for the resurrection and then talk a lot about theology and talk about Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. But I start off the book going, why was there a resurrection atonement so uh, how does the atonement work and how does the holy trinity work so so i look at this and say well the holy trinity and i have a whole bit on the holy trinity the holy trinity doesn't make any sense so that's nonsense nobody can explain that no no one can so it's and i talk about the idea that the the most prevalent theory is mysterianism which is to say that it's a mystery i don't know how it works i I just i'm telling you it does work it's like uh, no, that doesn't really, that doesn't cut the mustard for me. But then there's the atonement and all these different theories of the atonement. No one can agree on what, what atonement is and how it works. So all Christians today will have uh, adhered to, to, to subscribe to different um, theories of atonement. And so in the book, I, I say, look, atonement doesn't make sense. And the Holy Trinity doesn't make sense. So therefore, the rest of this book is irrelevant. I can argue about the, the fact that you've got contradictions and that this didn't happen, that didn't happen, the resurrection didn't happen. But I don't need to do that because the resurrection makes no sense because atonement makes no sense. It supervenes on atonement and atonement is incoherent. And one of the main arguments I talk about the incoherency of, of the atonement is this is exactly what you just said, which is why you're awesome. <laughs> so you've got, if you believe in a literal Adam and Eve, you have got, uh, you've, so the first problem is this, you have got 
God uh, punishing humans, the fall, you've got God punishing humans on account of what Adam and Eve did, which is to say that if Adam and Eve are representative of humanity, which means that if I put you into the shoes of Adam and Eve or into the, they didn't wear shoes, into the fig leaf of Adam and Eve, then you would have made the same mistake, which means it's fair to punish all of humanity because they are representative of us, okay? And I'll come to another problem with that. Or they weren't representative of humanity, which means to say, if I put you in Adam and Eve's fig leaf, you might have chosen not to have eaten from the tree. And therefore, that how is it fair that we're all being punished and we have the fall on account of an original sin on account of Adam and Eve who are not representative of humanity? So that's a problem. And it's made worse, uh, more of a problem because- It more problems, right, go ahead. Because if Adam and Eve are representative of us and we all would have done badly and made a wrong decision in the Garden of Eden, then that is a case of shit design. So God has designed oh, humanity to say, God has designed humanity in such a way that he, and if he's got divine foreknowledge, he knew 100% in advance that we, all of us, would have made the wrong decision and then he's punishing us on account of the decisions we supposedly made. But we didn't have any um, input into our own design. So therefore, and he's sovereign, uh, ultimately responsible for, for, creating, for designing and creating us in the full knowledge that, that we would have failed. So, so if atonement is all about, is all about um, paying for the sins of humanity and, and God is, is sovereignly responsible for the sins of humanity through being ultimately responsible for our design and creation, then atonement makes no sense. Yeah, and, and to go even farther, this God is omnipotent and he knows what's going to happen in the future. So that means he created Adam and Eve, put a freaking tree in the middle of the garden and said, don't touch that one tree. Then he creates a talking snake who he knows all about because he created them. He created everything. So he knows all the inner workings of them. He knows the future. So he knows this is all going to happen. He knows this whole entire scenario is going to happen. So that means he planned it. You have to, you have to accept that he planned it. So then you got Adam and Eve falling. And then you got, he sets up this Jerusalem city that it's going to be his city. It's going to be a light to the world. And these uh, Levite priests, their job is to go into the temple and hear the, hear, hear the revelations from the Lord and write down the prophecy. You got Jeremiah and Isaiah. And all this time goes by and they're doing everything they say they're supposed to do. And you give them, they're given the laws. And all of a sudden, I changed my mind. I don't like those people. I'm going to give you a, a savior now. And because those they couldn't do what I wanted. So now they're going to give you the savior now. Forget the law. They want you to forget all of that. that. None of that makes sense. And not one time during all those, that whole thousand year reign of, 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 of these Levite priests, not once they tell him, oh, yeah, I have a son, by the way. His name's Jesus, and uh, he can save you if you just believe in him. Never tells him that. Just throws that out the, out the window. And then all of a sudden, it, he even tells him things like, no one, can pay for, no one can pay ransom for sins of others. But then he sends him a son that can for some reason. The whole thing just gets confusing when you look at it from, when you take a step back and look at the whole thing. It doesn't make sense logically. Now, what does make sense logically is when you look at it from a propaganda state religion perspective of governments, ancient governments looking for noble lies like like uh like Plato talks about the noble lie. We got to figure out this myth to get everybody in line and everybody in sync into one line of thinking, okay? And what that will do is they'll fight our wars for us because they'll think if they die in war, they're going to be that's going to be a, a a very glorious and um, honorable death and they'll go straight to heaven and all these concepts start coming and all I, these I, I would I would disagree with with that understanding I don't think it's uh, quite so planned so I think what what happened when you talk about the Hebrew Bible it was it was cultural memory over a large amount of time like the Garden of Eden is is nicked broadly from or stolen from uh, surrounding cultures so you've got the mesopotamian sumerian babylonian right. cultures that, that that strongly influence the the construction of the hebrew bible uh and 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 there is that but then what happens is the uh the jewish people the judahites go into um exile in the 500s 600s bce and as they go into exile into babylonia they are 
devoid of a national identity. They don't have a holy book. They don't have, uh, they're in exile. They're feeling of being lost or a lot of them are in exile. So there's no surprise that, that that's when the book, you're right, propaganda, a, a book of propaganda of national identity of how awesome uh, uh, the, the Jewish people are but also explaining why they might be in exile. So it's this whole idea of the Deuteronomistic histories of, of like, you do wrong, you get punished. So that, that's how we understand why we're in this. But then you've got Moses escaping from bondage in Israel. Why is that such an important, why is the Exodus the big story? Because they are in exile in Babylonia. They then come out of Babylonia and then the rest of the Bible is all sort of redacted and put together and put together. So you get this uh, propaganda national identity um, tale of these pe peoples who are who and and that's stealing from cultural ideas from from when they were in exile from the surrounding cultures and from scribal schools they would have been picking up or having to learn about you know the the epic of gilgamesh and all this stuff and it's no no it's no wonder that the that the flood stories nick from the epic of gilgamesh and the atrahasis and you got all these ideas that all come into the hebrew bible but it is anthropologically massively massively interesting culturally really interesting but it didn't happen certainly bits of it might have happened but not at all like is reported in the bible right. i wouldn't say it was centrally planned as some kind of way of of you know to do with war and this but it was it was certainly a kind of propagandistic um well it's all well the whole time it's all it's all natural progression i'm not i'm not saying yeah. that guys got together yeah. with the pen with the with the with some papyrus and ink and was like let's just, let's yeah. just write this no this is all slowly oh it's evolution. It really is. Yeah, it's, it's the idea that, that religion is the opiate of the masses. Is as if like someone sat back and said, "I'm going. To, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to invent a religion so that I can control the masses." No, but religions can be co-opted to control the masses. So they're not designed to control the masses. They're just a really useful vehicle to the, to enable people to control the masses. Yeah, and it's always it's always hindsight looking back and being able to. Basically, when, like like I was saying, when you actually take a step back and 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 say, does this actually make sense? If this is an omnipotent creator that knows everything and he's perfect and he can do whatever he wants, this is this is a poor job for someone like that. That's so this, this is another argument. I mean, I, I wrote a book called. Um, it's based on loads of my previous writings that I pulled together into a book called "The Problem with God." because it depends how you define God, a classical theism under the spotlight. And the book is all about all these kind of arguments, which is to say that, that, that if you are omnipotent, omniscient, om omnibenevolent, why would you create at all? What's the point of creating? How does this Adam and Eve like problem we talked about in the term and all that, but, but also like, if you are a perfect creator, there is in some sense, this world must be a perfect world. So it's either perfect now in, it, in its creation, that's difficult to argue. Or in that case, it's a necessary creation. It's it's nece God necessarily had to create this world in order to get to the perfect world. Do you know what I mean? It's a journey towards a perfect world. But because there cannot be any gratuitous pain and suffering, all pain and suffering is necessary for a greater good. So if we are on a journey to a better world, then it's a necessary amount of pain that we're suffering now. He couldn't have created the world with any less pain or any more pain, this is the perfect amount of pain and suffering in order to get to some perfection at the end. And that's like, nah, I don't buy that. But yeah, and, and that's why I said it's all about hindsight because you're looking back at the past and trying to explain it in a certain way and then sort of twisting that and to look at the future and what you need to do and this and that and the third. And it's all, it's all, it's, it's basically, it's all trying to figure things out in a, in a way that is, is viable for whoever but, yeah but the but really important to point to what you say there is 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 the our notion of god has changed so now we have a much more abstract idea of god throughout the world where god is this omni 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 god um so so the, then you have to go back to the old testament which is not written with an omni god in mind this was uh you know baal and and yahweh in in a pantheon of gods and they're very much human i mean uh stavrak Francesca 
anyway, her book, The Anatomy of God, shows that actually it's just come out, shows that God is literally anthropomorphic uh, and very um, has 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 body parts. And, you know, that 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 was the God of the Old Testament. But right. we don't believe in that kind of God now. We believe in this abstract omni God. So right. then we're trying to retrospectively go exactly. back into the Old Testament and reinterpret it in terms of an omni God. And you can't do that because it wasn't written in terms of an omni God. That's exactly what I was trying to say. You just explained it. You're, you're good at explaining things. That's probably why you're right. Um, but yeah, this has been great. Everyone go check out Jonathan Pierce on Amazon. Go buy the book. And we're going to do this again very soon. And uh, you have just attained true gnosis.